0: Hello and welcome to a new series from Fidelity International where we tap the brains of our analysts to learn about the industries and businesses you're investing in. I'm Neil Goff, Asia Editor at Fidelity. Alright
1: ladies and gentlemen, a very good morning. Welcome to Singapore Zoo and to our jungle breakfast.
0: Okay. I'm at the Singapore Zoo, where every day thousands of visitors get up close and personal with orangutans, the world's largest arboreal mammals. These majestic apes spend most of their lives in the treetops of the jungles of Sumatra and Borneo. It's where they eat, sleep, and raise their young. But it might not be long before zoos are the only places left to see these creatures. They're critically endangered because millions of hectares of their habitats have been illegally logged or cleared to make way for palm oil plantations. And the palm oil producers are under increasing pressure from consumers, NGOs, and investors to lessen their environmental impact. From the jungles of Southeast Asia, we move to the steel mills of Northern China, where the government is closing the least profitable and most polluting plants, in part to reduce the thick, toxic smog that can hang over the homes of hundreds of millions of people. This is strong-arm, top-down industrial policy but it has staunched financial losses and improved air quality. So what did these two stories of environment-related pressure mean for the industries in question? Will short-term pain brought on by external pressures lead to long-term gain for the companies and investors involved? And what might that mean for other sectors facing similar challenges? I spoke to Fidelity's analysts on the ground in Asia to find out. Joining me here today in Fidelity's Singapore offices in the heart of the Marina Bay Financial District are Forrest Schultz, an equity investment analyst who focuses on metals and mining across Asia, and Minlin Li, a research associate who covers equities, including palm oil producers, among other things. Forrest, Minlin, welcome to you both. Thanks. Forrest, China's government has been taking a rather top-down approach to cleaning up pollution at its steel mills.
2: What have they been doing? So the original reason they had to eliminate this capacity was that you had a steel industry and a coal industry that had a trillion dollars of liabilities that weren't being effectively serviced. So the government decided, we need to do something to improve the profitability of these companies so that they can pay down a lot of this debt that they had. And then when they decided to do this, they were quite clever, actually, in saying that they would do this in a way that would have the secondary benefit of really improving atmospheric pollution so they went after the steel mills that were the dirtiest that were the most dangerous and they they just basically shut down this capacity so you know we're talking several hundred million tons of capacity that was either illegal or just unneeded really give us a sense of how big the steel industry is in
0: china and the the amount of capacity they've taken out what is that in the the bigger picture
2: they eliminated probably 120 million tons of illegal steel capacity that wasn't being recorded in statistics anywhere, and probably somewhere around 200 million tons of legal capacity. So you're talking about two North America's worth of steel consumption of capacity that were wiped off the face of the earth. And as they've done this, we've seen market improvements in the air quality in China, particularly in the Northeast, where the topography is particularly challenging and pollution tends to get trapped in the winter. Basically a move of pretty epic proportions in terms of the scale and scope of things. Yeah, I mean, just as the same as you saw, like the growth of the steel industry in China was probably something we've never seen, you know, in the history of the world. We've never seen a decapacity push as big as this anywhere else in the world either. Minlin, palm
0: oil producers have also come under pressure from external parties, shall we say, to reduce their impact on the environment. That pressure, though, has come from something quite different than what we've seen in China. What's the situation there?
1: So a lot of the pressures have been coming from consumers from Europe. So for example, Unilever, Nestle, they have been coming under pressure increasingly because of the way they have been sourcing palm oil, as well as concerns on the way palm oil has been produced and planted. Palm oil plantations actually result in deforestation because forests have to be clear in order for planting to take place and actually is one of the key producing crops for Indonesia, apart from timber and pulp, for example. And then also, it also leads to the loss of biodiversity because it's known that when palm oil plantations replace forests, this results in the loss of flora and fauna. Including
0: less, orangutans.
1: Including orangutans, as well as the Asian elephants, the Sumatran tigers as well, are kind of lost as a result of palm oil plantations replacing forests.
0: And then the pressure coming basically from buyers and users. Yeah,
1: mainly from buyers at the end of the supply chain.
0: Forest, the steel and the palm oil industries, then they're impacting on the environment in pretty different ways. But one way they both have a very visible impact on the environment is in terms of air quality specifically. Mm. You've been in northern China on a bad air day or what some there might sure. call an airpocalypse. Uh, can you paint the picture for us a little bit?
2: Yeah, I tend to go to the, the less touristy parts of China. As you know, a metal and mining analyst, I'm usually going to steel mill towns and aluminum smelters and coal mining towns. And you know, I can think when I was in Zhengzhou maybe half a year ago, a year ago, and it was in one of their worst air quality days, and this is one of the worst cities in China for air quality, that as soon as we got off the train and left the station, you know, everyone's eyes were burning in the back of your throat. You know, have this kind of like gritty feel, and it, it smells a bit of sulfur or rotten eggs. It, it's pretty, pretty intense. When, when you keep in mind that this is a city of like 9, 10 million people, we're not talking about me wandering through the actual aluminum smelter. This is just walking through the city by the train station. On the flip side, you know, you go to these cities, and it looks a lot like Shanghai used to look to me in, you know, 2004, 2005, or whatever. And there has been this, on the flip side, incredible improvement in the quality of people's lives. Actually, on that same trip where I went to Zhengzhou, I was in a hotel in, I think, Tangshan. And there was a guy who he had kind of a bit odd Chinese. And I thought at first, maybe he was making fun of my Chinese, since my pronunciation isn't perfect either. But I realized that this guy was actually almost deaf. He was wearing this very high-tech, you know, hearing aid, and I was thinking, man, when I came to China 17 years ago, a guy like this wouldn't have been engaged in the economy at all. He wouldn't be able to be a productive person because no one would have been able to afford this. When you're traveling through these places, you see the flip side of this industrialization, you know, this development has really been incredibly beneficial for these guys, but on the flip side, the environment, it, you know, it, it has to be addressed.
0: Midland, with the, the air. Pollution, I know maybe that's not the main issue when it comes to palm oil production, but it has been, specifically here in Singapore, right?
1: Yeah, I think the whole issue on air pollution actually picked in two specific years in Singapore if we think about it in 2013 and 2015. So forest fires kind of broke out in Indonesia and then resulted in air pollution. They're, yeah. they're
0: burning down virgin forest or, or
1: mm. It can be as a result or? of slash and burn mm-hmm. or as a result of dry weather can actually just even result in primary forests being burned as well. So it's kind of hard to track but if we look at satellite mapping, the only thing that we can kind of attribute it to is the fact that there's been burning happening here as a result of slash and burn and then we attribute the blame to them
0: so it's slash and burn so that you can plant palm trees basically
1: yeah So if I were to measure how bad the haze condition was in Singapore, I think on a clear day, we have PSIs of about 30 to 40. And PSIs were actually more than 300 during those two years, 2013 and 2015, I think around the months of October or so. And that's when it's considered really hazardous levels. Schools are usually closed when PSIs reach between 200 to 300. And in Indonesia, there were reports that PSIs were Beyond one thousand, the issues kind of escalated when Singapore government raised this to Indonesia. It became a political kind of issue, and so then there came the pressure on Indonesia's governments to make sure that they, they do something about the air pollution. I recall walking on the street and mass were actually all sold out everywhere and I had to use my hair as a filter.
0: With regard to air pollution, I know that that's one kind of symptom of expanding palm oil production, but the bigger one, as you said earlier, is kind of the loss of biodiversity and deforestation. What are the companies themselves doing about this or how are they responding to this increased pressure, be it from consumers or intermediary buyers or even from, you know, neighbourly governments like, like Singapore?
1: I think if I were to go back in history in terms of the regulations coming out in making sure palm oil plantations are kind of sustainably run, we will actually go back to a point in time in 2004 when the Round Table for Sustainable Palm Oil was formed from uh, several stakeholders. Uh, we have WWF, Unilever, and then the Malaysia Palm Oil Association, and several other stakeholders coming together to come up with standards which they think will be suitable and applicable to the palm oil industry in terms of the environmental, um, social, and how local communities should be better managed to address the key challenges relating to the palm oil industry. And as a result, companies started applying these standards in their planting. And it was only in 2011 when the Indonesia government started coming up with a moratorium to prevent new conversion to palm oil plantations from primary forested areas. And as a result of the pressures coming out from the haze issues in 2013 and 2015, the Jokowi government, which came in in 2015, came up with a new regulation to extend the moratorium So this has actually resulted in companies stopping new plantings, especially from year 2010 onwards. So we now see a much reduced pace or even zero pace of new plantings, at least from the company side, which can be more visibly regulated.
0: And then what is the effect of that in terms of overall supply uh, growth um, across the industry?
1: Mm. I think... If we were to go back in time, the pig planting for palm oil actually came in between twenty o five and twenty o nine for Indonesia. We have about at least twenty to thirty percent growth in new plantings every year. And since the moratorium came out in twenty eleven, we are now seeing negative or zero new plantings that are coming out from companies. What we are seeing right now is more of replantings because palm oil has a twenty five year cycle. So for the those that have reached maturity, they will then have to replant. So new plantings are very limited from 2010 onwards. And as a result of this, if we think about the impact on palm oil supply, we will start seeing the whole supply of palm oil going down more dramatically from 2019 onwards. So it's
0: a structural undersupply basically that we've kind of built yeah, in. Yeah,
1: if I were to compare against demand of let's say 4 to 5% per year for global demand out of about 60 million tonnes of, of palm oil consumption per year
0: moving elegantly to China and this steel production, a similar situation, you, you've seen a lot of supply coming offline. How does that affect the near to midterm outlook for profitability of the sector?
2: Yeah, actually, I should draw a distinction that it's not supply going offline, it's capacity going offline. All right, right. So if you look at steel production in 2018, it, it was actually very strongly up year on year. But because they're competing against less capacity, there's fewer people able to produce, the profitability has... Improve sharply. If you think of like a normal through cycle steel spread, and by spread I mean the price of steel minus the three main material inputs, you know, iron ore, coking coal, and scrap, the normal spread would be somewhere, you know, between $200, $220, $230, somewhere in there. And during 2017, late 2017, 2018, the spread was closer to $300, you know, the high $200. So you know, that's not just a 50% improvement in profitability, because you have a lot of fixed costs. Depending on the company, you could have seen a much bigger increase in profitability than that. And We've also seen a, a big improvement in how levered these companies are as they've been able to pay down a lot of their debt.
0: Are there softer costs to complying with this? I mean, from a, from a company standpoint, are they challenged with you know spending more, investing more to meet the uh, tighter environmental emissions conditions or regulations?
2: Yeah, I think this is about as close as you get to everyone kind of just winning, right? The the external costs are, yes, steel is going to be slightly more expensive a ton, but that's really passed on to the eventual consumers of steel. So, you know, if you look at construction and you say we're building, maybe, you know, single digit percentage of it is steel cost and, and that went up by a few percentage. We're talking a few percentage on a few percentage. So you don't really see that cost impact anywhere on a social level. But the benefit is huge in that you've really reduced the financial sector risk. Like before, these steel mills all going bankrupt could have really bankrupted the Chinese banking system. And before, you know, when we had all this dirty capacity, it was was clearly negatively impacting people's health. So I think this has been really, you know, an economic decision with incredibly positive environmental externalities.
0: And there's, I guess, another component, too. Uh, You talk about the systemic risk of underperforming companies. There's also potentially an unemployment problem that could be created there.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's another really interesting point, though. But if you think about the Chinese labor force, this is no longer growing. This has been shrinking every year for the last couple of years. So the need to really create jobs in China is much lower than it would have been even five years ago, just based on the demographic shape of, you know, whatever you want to call it, the the age uh, profile of China. We no longer really need to create as many jobs. You know, yes, there is a need to create higher quality jobs. Yes, you see urbanization where you want to give jobs to people moving from the countryside. But the level of pressure that the government is under is much lower than it was before.
0: The other kind of issue I, I was thinking of is, you know, China was ruffling feathers among key trading partners mm-hmm. with vast amounts of steel exports the last yeah. few years. And now if you're reducing capacity, taking capacity offline, or they then disincentivized to export and to your trade relationships get a little bit better.
2: Yeah, your intuition is correct. You've seen a drop in exports, in fact, of steel from China as, you know, both because they've had a reduction in the amount of capacity they have, but also because there is strong demand for the steel. So in 2018, there was a drop in exports. And beyond that, it kind of doesn't really matter if you're exporting it and you're importing steel because this spread that everyone's enjoying is, is kind of common to everyone across the planet. So China is consuming about half the steel on the planet. China is producing about half the steel on the planet. If Chinese profitability improves, American profitability improves to some degree, Japanese profitability improves to some degree. So this improvement in utilization that China has enjoyed has also been enjoyed by everyone else around the world as well.
0: Min with palm oil producers and the profitability situation, is it a comparable situation where this coming kind of shortage of capacity will increase the profitability? Will it impact on palm oil prices?
1: That's yet to be proven. My thesis is that it will start coming in 2019-2020 when we start seeing the supply shortage coming through as a result of new plantings going down to zero or even negative levels from 2010 onwards. But right now what we are seeing is a situation of oversupply in the edible oils market. And one of the key drivers for palm oil prices is actually that of soybean oil, for example, because that's a key substitute for palm oil. So that's one of the key elements that will kind of affect the dynamics of how palm oil prices should trade apart from the whole supply shortage issue as well.
2: Uh,
0: Forrest, what are you seeing in China?
2: If you look at the winter of 2017 to the start of 2018, Beyond the the capacity reduction programs, they also have uh, production restriction programs. capacity reduction programs are really just about getting rid of excess capacity to improve the profitability. The winter restrictions are really focused just on environmentally troubled areas and, and saying produce less steel during this time or emit less pollution during this time as they've kind of shifted to... But in the winter of 2017-18, we saw a 25% year-on-year improvement of key air quality KPIs as measured by the Chinese Ministry of Environment and Ecology. Their target was 15%, so they, they overshot this. Part of this was due to you know, weather and atmospheric conditions being particularly favorable, yeah. but either way, the, the government really made it a marked improvement uh, year-on-year in, in what they were looking to do. So, you know, the environmental groups we talked to, they were incredibly happy. Like, they were impressed with the progress. I think it's exceeded everyone's expectations. Where does that leave
0: us? What's next in China? Are we going to continue to see these 25% reductions year on
2: year in pollutants and emissions? Or is that a temporary blip? I think the the 25% reduction, we probably won't be able to match that rate of decline. But I think the decline in pollution will continue. There's been a change of strategy, whereas before the central government gave down top-down orders to, you know, eliminate X amount of capacity in this region, or, you know, restrict production X amount in that region. Now they're saying, look, we're more concerned with the outcome. We're less concerned with how you achieve that. So if you want to invest in scrubbers, or if you want to invest in some other technology to reduce your emissions, you know, more power to you. And we're going to allow the local government to figure out how to reach their targets, rather than telling them reach your emissions targets via uh, capacity reductions or production reductions. And then I think once we get a little bit further along, I think the next battles really are going to be for water. And then the final battle is is for ground or soil pollution. And water is not as much of an issue for metal and mining. It, it is an issue, but for aluminum, red mud creation, which is a byproduct of making alumina, is a huge issue. And so I expect this will be a big topic that we'll be talking about in future years.
0: Midland, where do you think things go from here? I mean, if your forecasts hold up, we'll see a fall off in capacity, a shortfall, basically. Wouldn't that then encourage another flurry of people running out and, and converting? forest land into uh, palm oil production again?
1: So the moral terms on a two to five year basis but have been consistently renewed because of external pressures coming through from environmental watch groups, other governments, to make sure that um, the pollution standards are contained in Indonesia and Malaysia. So in terms of the flurry of new plantings coming through, I think that that won't happen this cycle. I guess the next battle for the palm oil industry is more of ensuring that smallholders comply. What we are seeing in the past few years has been the pressure on distant companies or larger companies to make sure that they comply with the sustainability standards. But it has been hard to ensure that smallholders live up to the same level of standards. And I think we need to address that because they form about 40% of total production in order for people to really change the impression that we have on palm oil as a whole.
0: Yeah, clearly some big challenges there. I'm afraid we're out of time for today, but it's been a fascinating look at how two giant industries have been engaging with significant external pressures over their environmental impact and what their responses mean for both their long-term sustainability and profitability. I'd like to thank my two guests, Minlin Lee and Forrest Schultz, and from Fidelity Singapore office, thank you for listening and goodbye.